Irish him. Okay. For those who don't know, uh, at South Yarra in the evening, at the end of the month, we've been doing a seminar series on the Lord's Prayer. And I have been privileged to speak for the second time on this subject. And tonight I'm going to be looking at the section of the Lord's Prayer uh, where, where Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Um, so I'm going to basically break this talk into three parts. We're going to look at what is evil, um, who is the evil one, and we're going to look at God's ability to deliver us from evil and what that means. So I'm going to start with what is evil. Uh, recently at work, a lady departed the organisation after having worked there for eight years. Uh, as a gift, she was given three ornaments, each in the shape of a monkey. One monkey covering its eyes, uh, one covering its ears, and one covering its mouth, <clears throat> which is an ancient Japanese proverb, see no evil, speak no evil, and hear no evil, uh, which is also known as the three wise monkeys. And um, uh, I can't remember the place in Japan, I think it's Nikko or something like that. You can see these inscribed in our temple. So two weeks later, I was speaking to a colleague who is from China. Um, she told me that after seeing this saying, she realised that this is something similar to what she was taught growing up, uh, which actually stems from Confucius, um, which is, in fact, the origin of that proverb. So I'll quote you from Confucius. Uh, look not at what is contrary to propriety. Listen not to what is contrary to propriety. Speak not what is contrary to propriety. Make no movement which is contrary to propriety. So there's actually four things. So you could say Confucius taught of four monkeys rather than three. The fourth being do no evil. Um, so we notice that Confucius does not use the word evil, but the phrase contrary to propriety. So, well, the obvious question is, what is propriety? Now, the word propriety means um, to conform to convention conventionally accepted standards of behaviour and morals. Um, so, is that what Confucius means by contrary to propriety? So, I asked my colleague, well, that is all well and good, but what is evil and who determines it? Or we could ask Confucius, what are the rules of propriety? My colleague said the key word is li, uh, which is the, act, the Chinese word from which propriety is derived. Uh, so it's speak no li, see no li, hear no li. Uh, li means rites or ceremonies and could be best described as a social etiquette, mannerisms, politeness, respectfulness, investing in family, community and polity relationships and fully subscribing to culture-specific and social norms. In other words, it's basically a, a complex web of doing everything the right way to keep everyone happy. According to Confucius, it is through Li that one discovers Ren, which is to discover one's humanity and character. Confucius said, the rules of propriety serve as instruments to form men's characters. They remove from a man all perversity and increase what is beautiful in his nature. They make him correct. When employed in the ordering of himself, they ensure for him a free course when employed toward others. 
But I still wanted to know what is evil and who determines it. My colleague said it is what the majority of people believe. So that gave me something to work with. I said, ah, so Confucius held to the majority view of ethics, the majority view of ethics, which I went on to explain the majority view of ethics, or right or wrong, is whatever the majority of people believe at any one point in time. As an aside, I do not think uh, from a social science perspective, sorry, I do think, that there's a lot of value gained from observing what the majority of people believe to be ethical. But that's just an aside. I went on to point out two of the main problems with the majority view of ethics. The first is that the majority can get it wrong. And we have countless examples in history that we can use to demonstrate this, from Greek pedestry, Roman infanticide, German eugenics, North American slavery, and the Hindu sati practices in the past. And that was, sati was when a widowed woman would be cremated with her husband, even though she was still alive. So that's something that was practiced in the past. So the majority can and have got it wrong throughout history. Uh, the second problem is that the majority view can present a relative truth of sorts of morality in that two different and contrary majority ethical practices can both be seen to be right and moral when considering the passage of time. So there was a time when the majority of the world believed that slavery was the natural condition and thus slave ownership, according to the majority view, was the ethical practice of the day. Now, slavery is not believed to be the natural condition by the majority, so it would be unethical to own a slave. So can both owning and not owning be ethical when they are actually contrary to one another? That is what the majority view leads itself to present, a relative truth of ethics. What is ethical today may not be ethical tomorrow. So those are the two flaws I pointed out with the majority view. Uh, we discussed this, a little, this majority view a little further. The majority of people in most countries manifest themselves through a government which makes laws which shape culture and norms. And proponents of the majority view of ethics essentially concede that it is the government that is the highest power and whatever laws the government makes is what is ethical. Again, there are many governments around the world with conflicting, conflicting laws which presents us with a relative truth scenario again. My colleague said, so law is what defines what's right and wrong. So whatever is the law, that's what's right and wrong. Keep the law, you're doing the right thing. Break it, you're doing the wrong thing. Ah, well, does the law define right and wrong? What is law? Where does it come from? What is its relationship to morality? Are questions to consider. But we quickly moved on to the rights, freedoms and liberties that are enshrined in our law and discussed the point that these are written into things such as constitutions, charters and bill of rights, which are what shape the development of future governments, laws and societies. Much of our lawmaking today makes reference to lawmaking of the past, especially with reference to the Constitution. Then we quickly discussed who wrote the Constitution. We know, uh, this is not us discussing anymore, we know from history that Constitutions are written by revolutionaries, steeped in philosophy and ideas, and many contributing beliefs shape the content of these founding documents that go on to shape a nation. 
Christianity has been a huge factor in many of these constitutions, charters and Bill of Rights in Europe, Britain and America. My, my colleague and I had now travelled a long distance from the mere majority of people in society in an opinion poll determined the ethics of society for any one point in time. But we still had not solved the question, what is evil and who determines it? Uh, so in our CPA studies, so I'm an accountant, working in the accounting office, we learned about two different branches of ethics, uh, deontological ethics and ontological ethics. Deontological ethics, um, popularised by Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, are prescribed ethics flowing on, sorry, yeah, flowing on from basic principles and ideas. These prescribed principles of ethics shape the way we behave. Ontological ethics, ascribed to people like John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, describe the way we behave and from observing how we behave, determine how we should live. I pointed out to my colleague that there are major limitations with the ontological approach. The obvious being that one, how do you evaluate good and bad consequences flowing from a set of actions with limited and incomplete sample sizes. So you never can observe everything, you just observe your limited sample size and from that you make absolute statements, which is a flaw. And two, there is so much bad stuff in this world, how do we know that is not how it should be, if you're just going by what you see? So the problem with deontological ethics is that we still have not solved what is evil and who determines it? How do we know what an 18th century German man had the right absolute principles any more than a 6th century BC China man? How can limited and finite human beings make absolute statements about right and wrong? Um, in conclusion, I said, it is prescribed principles that shape us as people and cultures and determine how we behave and those principles ultimately come down to us from God. And this is where the conversation ended. Mention of God seems to be a conversation killer among Confucians, based on my sample size of one. I would also like to add now that there is also an ontological component of Christian ethics in that God has given us a conscience and he has written his laws into nature, which we call natural law. Thus we have examples throughout history of nations who had no interaction with the revealed laws of God written in scripture still developing sophisticated legal systems that parallel the ethics and morals reviewed to us in the scripture. Although they had a lot of idols and emperor worship. So without reference to the Bible, although we might get some things right, we are still grasping in the dark like everyone else. So this brings us to answer my question, what is evil and who determines it? God. God is absolute in that he has all power, knowledge and experience and is not limited like we are as humans. His wisdom is an eternal wisdom. God is the ultimate legislator and judge of the universe. Breaking his laws and commandments is what constitutes as evil. To God, our maker, we must give an account to which we will be judged by his standards. The question that flows out of this is one of self-evaluation. Are you an evil person? Am I an evil person? Certainly not, many would say. The jihadists in Syria and Iraq beheading people are the evil people, or the pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine are the evil people. It is an axiom of our culture that although we are not perfect, there is always someone who is more evil than we are, or worse than we are. 
So a simple critique of this axiom, however, without reference to the scripture for now, which tells us that nobody is good, not even one, is that every human in this world is capable of committing the worst acts of evil. There's nothing inherently better about me than most of the evil people. Our flesh and blood are the same. If you swap our privileges, our family upbringing, our education, and the places that we live, I'm just as capable and able to commit the most heinous offences against the human race and against God, even with those things in place that I have. If it's not for the grace of God, I'm capable of committing extremely evil things, not to mention the daily offences I commit against God. So the mere fact that all people are capable of committing evil, not to mention, uh, sorry, is that there is nothing inherent stopping us from doing it, shows that there is a cause for reflection on the axiom of our culture. Another axiom that even our cultural critics accept is that everyone is evil to some degree in the eyes of another person. So everyone in our world, or in this world, has failed to meet the standards of at least one other person. Uh, Even the best of people, on a generally accepted basis, do things that someone else in the world would disagree with. So, me, I'm a pretty decent man, I work for a charity, I go to church, I exercise, obey the law, and I treat my family well. Um, But when I met a Buddhist in Nepal, uh, he believed that eating meat was like killing an animal. And in his eyes, I was a filthy person. Um, So I'm a pretty evil person in his eyes. And the Mujahideen are probably not a fan of my work either. So it is also important to remember that evil is not just what we do, but it's also what we see, what we hear, and what we speak. We are capable of committing great evil against each other and against God in our hearts and in our minds that even God, that only God can see. So we're all evil in someone else's eyes. And ultimately, that someone else is God who will bring all our evil acts, words, thoughts, and feelings into judgment. So part two, I'm going to look now at the evil one. Um, so having established that there is such a thing as evil, there is evil in this world, there is the capacity for evil in every one of us, and even the best of us fall short of someone else's standards, and in particular God's perfect standard, we must ask the question, where does evil come from? So philosophically, it's not hard to argue and establish that there must be, by necessity, an absolute power, which is God. Uh, the existence of morals, laws, ethics, and their siblings, guilt, justice, and wrongs, points us to a higher law, a meta-moral code, which comes to us from the one who is ultimately good. The existence of laws of logic and the impossibility of pure contradictions points us to the one who knows all things and in whom truth and ultimate reality is found. But philosophically alone, can it be argued that God is not the source of evil? Is Is the God of the philosophers capable of being morally arbitrary? Is he capable of creating both good and evil and causing them both to happen? Well, it's not too out of the box to suggest that without reference to the God of the Bible, it is possible to end up with a God who creates evil, or alternatively, a two-God dualism model of good versus evil. The gods of the ancient Assyrians and Greeks were committing, committing acts of evil against each other and their people. The gods of the Hindus committed acts of evil against each other and their people. The Quran specifically teaches that Allah both created evil and good and causes them both to happen. And this was the famous line used against God by philosophers like John Stuart Mill, who believed something did not add up when you have a God who is all good and all powerful 
yet evil prevailing in this world. So we cannot learn from nature and philosophy alone where evil comes from. So we turn to the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is holy, pure and righteous. Jesus, as the incarnate word of God, lived a perfect life, kept the law perfectly and was the unblemished sacrifice required to save us from our sins. God is eternally moral and righteous and not arbitrarily moral in that God created morality. It is in God's being to be moral and his law flows from his nature as he teaches us how to be like him and how he has designed us to live. When we pray to God, deliver us from evil, in the original language it could be read as rescue us from the evil one, which has led scholars to believe that it is Satan in view here, as evil personified. The Bible teaches that Satan is the source of evil. Satan, pictured as a serpent in the garden and called the father of lies in whom there is no truth, The Bible teaches that the whole world lies in the power of the devil, that Satan has the power of death. He is the prince of the power of the air, under whose influence we all once were, before being rescued by the conquering death of Christ on the cross. The devil continues to roam the world, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan continues to deceive the nations through idols and false religion of which the Bible describes as demonic activity in the heavenly realms. There are a few things we need to remember about Satan. Satan is a created being. God created Satan originally as an archangel similar to Michael and Gabriel. Satan led a rebellion of angels and were cast out of heaven and down to earth. Although Satan controls a web of fallen angels or demons, Satan himself is not like God. He is limited in power, knowledge and presence. James teaches us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us, whereas with God, his grace is irresistible. God did not create Satan as the prince of darkness, but he fell into that state. Satan has an origin and will have an end. The Bible teaches that he will be cast into the lake of fire along with his followers. Satan's weapons against God, Christians and against the church are the world and the flesh. The world presents to us glories, pleasures and riches which are so much more appealing to our human nature on the surface than to live for God and Satan uses them to deceive, weaken and draw people away from God. The world is able to infiltrate the church and divide people against one another, weakening the authority and the influence of the church. Our flesh is also used by Satan against us as inherently bad people but saved by grace, we are still prone to the weaknesses of the flesh until Christ takes us home. So as a self-reflection, we know sin is bad and it offends God and that it is what sent Jesus to the cross. We know we are forgiven and reconciled to God through Christ. But do we see the full reality of sin when we sin? Are we able to step outside of our situation into the heavenly places and see that behind every sin and behind every worldly influence on our life, we are succumbing to the works and influence of Satan. Do we recognise Satan at work when we sin? There are some self-reflection questions. Satan has been defeated by Christ, which is the third thing to note about Satan. Um, and I mentioned the large stained glass window, and you can still see it. And you can see Satan at Jesus' feet, um, uh, which is... Um, the promise in the Bible, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and he's making his enemies his footstool. Uh, the last enemy is death. 
and he would defeat death when he returns the second time. Um, in 1 John 3.18 we read, For this purpose the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil. Because Jesus has conquered Satan on the cross. Satan believed, Satan used his greatest um, weapon against Christ by sending him to the cross the most torturous device invented by man at that time. It was actually through the cross that Christ saved us from our sins. So the greatest plan of Satan was actually used by God. Okay, so now we're going to look at the third part of this talk, which is God as a deliverer. So we pray to God, deliver us from evil. So I want to focus on how God can deliver us from Satan and from evil when we pray to him. We ask God to deliver us. Um, So I looked through the New Testament uh, and I looked at other uses of that word deliver. Um, There's a few other references, I think there's 18 references to the same word from which we get deliver in the New Testament and they actually break down into three very neat categories. So I think these three things is what we have in mind when we pray to God to deliver us from evil. Uh, The first one is found in Colossians. Uh, we read from the Apostle Paul that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the domain of darkness is another way of saying the domain of Satan. When we pray for deliverance from Satan, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we can recognise that God has already delivered us from Satan in a significant and everlasting way when we were born again and made his disciples. So if if Christ has done that for us once, he can do it for us again. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We need to remember that being delivered from the power of Satan was to be delivered from the same end Satan will eventually come to, that is everlasting death. So this can encourage us to pray for our loved ones and our friends who have not yet been delivered, knowing that God is capable to deliver them also. So that's the first way we can pray to God to deliver us from evil. Uh, second way is in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul gives us an insight into the daily battle between our spirit and the flesh. Uh, the spirit wills, but the flesh is weak. The spirit desires and delights in the law of God, but the flesh makes us do the things we hate to do. This is the daily struggle of every Christian. We are constantly tempted to sin, which itself is not sin, but we often give in to temptation. Paul finishes Romans 7 by by writing, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that can be the same prayer for us when we're asking God to deliver us from the flesh. When we pray to God to deliver us from the evil one, we're praying for God to rescue us from our daily battle with our temptations and our weaknesses in areas of struggle that the rest of the world cannot see. We pray to God for strength to overcome the weaknesses of the flesh And remember that our weaknesses and failures only drive us to praise God for his mercy and to grab onto Christ, our Lord, even more tightly. We can also look to Jesus and the way he overcame his 40 days of temptation with Satan as an example and remember to arm ourselves with the promises of God and the knowledge knowledge of scripture to thwart Satan's lies. I was just reflecting on the reading from Genesis as it was read in our readings Uh, at the start, Genesis 32, and Jacob is about to meet Esau, and he's terrified. He thinks Esau is going to destroy him. 
and he, he reminds God of his promises to him to preserve him and to, to make many nations flow from his seed. And he reflects on how God has protected him over time. And so it's a very similar prayer to what we can pray to God as well, to remind God of his promises to us and to be armed with scripture to reinforce that. Um, the most frequent use of the word delivered is in reference to trials and persecutions. Um, so I've got a few readings here. In Romans 15, 31, I, I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured, as happened among you, that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Uh, 2 Timothy 4. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, that all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued, or delivered, from the lion's mouth. And, and finally, 2 Peter 2, 7-9. And if God delivered or rescued the righteous lot, when the Lord knows how to, sorry, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I always love the particular image of God rescuing or delivering Lot from the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, even though Lot knew the city was going to be destroyed, he lingered in the city. Uh, he had so much invested in that city that he, he didn't want to leave it. And he had connections to the city through his wife. Um, so the angels grabbed him and his family by the hand and they dragged him out of the city. And the Lord was merciful to Lot. As an example of God delivering Lot from, from trials and temptations and, and, and destruction. So when we pray to God to deliver us from evil, um, we're recognising that God can deliver and rescue us from times of danger, times of great consternation or great difficulty, where our life, ministry, freedom or health may be under attack. And when we pray to him and ask him to deliver us from evil, um, you can notice also in the few references that I read above that Paul asks the church to pray for him in these situations, which is something we can do in great times of trial as well. So that just about concludes. Um, just to recap, um, to pray to God to deliver us from evil is to recognise that even we are guilty of committing evil against God. God has taught us to pray for, sorry, God has taught us to pray to Him to deliver us from evil within us the evil one who seeks to destroy the advance of the gospel in our lives and in the world. We can thank God for being delivered from the domain of darkness. Now, we can pray for strength as we battle within our flesh and we can ask God for him to deliver us from trials and persecutions. Uh, so that concludes the seminar. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to learn from your word about what it means to pray to you to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. Now, Lord, we are bombarded with temptation all the time and I pray that you can 
Help us to heed to the words of James that we may resist the devil and he will flee from us. Um, pray that we can pray to you constantly to deliver us from evil, from trials and persecutions in our life and from great difficulties that attack our faith. Um, pray that we can be bold and ask specifically that you'll deliver us from these circumstances like Jacob did in, in, in earlier in the scripture. Um, pray that you can encourage us as we go out to the week, not only to pray for ourselves to be delivered from evil, but also to pray for others to be delivered from evil as well. Um, pray that we can be mindful of our sin and, and the reality of it behind the scenes in the heavenly realms, that we are involved in a spiritual battle and uh, Satan is, is wielding his forces against us. Uh, but we have a great saviour who loves us and has died for us on our side and he is protecting us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.